Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. In the studio with me today is in the flesh, Dr. Jen. Good to see you, buddy. How are you? Oh, Dr. Shane, I can't tell you. It is so good to be back in the studio. I have not sat in the studio for over a year, even though oh. I've been doing breakfasts every week and hanging out with you on Einstein and Gogo, and it's a very long time. Yeah, it's it's weird because we're in April and I'm losing track in the new year of who in the team has been in and yeah. who hasn't. I thought, Jen's been in there. I thought, no, no, actually, when you came in, I thought, no, you haven't. I haven't no, seen no, you, I haven't I haven't seen you in every year. I've been in the building, but yeah, not in the studio. Not That's the, studio. the key difference. So no, it's a delight star. to be yeah. sitting opposite you, despite the perspex oh. between us. Yeah, the perspex. The, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. Uh, <laughs> be derogatory about perspex. But uh, the people we're keeping out of the studio, of course, uh, Chris KP and uh, Dr. Ewan. Hey, guys, can you hear us? Can. Oh, yes, loud and clear. <laughs> loud and clear. Uh, how are you, gentlemen? You doing well? We're doing well. You were well. doing really well. How am I, mate? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nothing changes at that end, Jen. No, nothing changes. <laughs> Folks, we've got quite a group of guests uh, coming up shortly, so we're going to get straight into some news from the week. Uh, Ewan, do you want to uh, start us off? Yeah, look, I thought I'd talk about buzzy bees because everyone loves bees, right? Everyone loves a bee story. Um, we know that bees are pretty amazing for a whole range of reasons. And there's another, um, I guess, study that's shown just how sophisticated they are in terms of their behaviours. Uh, this came from the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And this is about how bees basically relay information about the queen in this case. And so what they did was they wanted to understand how when the queen is basically trying to organise all the workers and get them to do something, um, how that actually happens, right? So obviously bees can't talk to each other like we talk to each other, but they can use pheromones. And what they did was they did a little neat experiment um, inside a pizza-shaped box or size box, and I I really wish that it was actually a pizza box. And (laughs) you know scientists probably actually did do it in a pizza box because, let's be honest, (laughs) the 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 food that drives science is pretty much pizza late at night. We all know that. But they did this experiment in a pizza-shaped sized box and um, which had a sort of a clear lid and then they put the worker bees inside that and then they tucked the queen on one side. And then what they found was that once the first worker bee basically located um, the, the queen, that, that bee then started um, basically going to this position where it raises its abdomen and then starts um, basically moving its wings and essentially wafting this pheromone, um, which is called Nasanov. And then other bees along the line basically started um, essentially forming a line behind these other bees. And so it's sort of been, um, I guess, equated to the telephone game. So I'm sure we've all sort of played the game as kids where, you know, one person whispers something to the ear and then someone else whispers something and you pass it down the chain. That's essentially what it appears the bees are doing. And this is the first time that someone's shown mass communication in bees, right? So we know, obviously, there's the, the bum wiggle dance that bees do to tell other bees where flowers are and, you know, which way to go and things like that. But this is the first time that someone's shown mass communication with pheromones to relay information. And there's, 
there's lots of good reasons for doing that. Obviously, you know, sometimes the, the queen needs the workers to do something. When the, when the hive swarms, so sometimes the hive will up and just get out of the uh, situation because the, the conditions are no longer suitable or the hive will split into two, right? And so the queen and all the workers need to go somewhere else. And obviously to do that, you need to have communication among a lot of individuals, right, that's effective and, and mm. you know, efficient. And so it's a pretty interesting study. But as, as the authors also point out, you know, this was a, done inside, you know, this pizza-shaped sized box. The question is how do they do this in nature, right? So in nature you've got wind, you've got rain, it's a 3D or much more 3D environment. So obviously the pheromones aren't going to move quite quite as um, quite the same way and quite as predictably. So how this operates in, in nature is not, not known yet, but obviously in this lab situation it shows, yeah, how they can actually send these messages along the chain. So it's a pretty neat we, little study. Do we know if they ever got it wrong? Because I'm playing a telephone game. The whole joke is that the end result is not what you started with. Did they, <laughs> did they, ever, did they really screw this up? I mean, I, I get yeah. that they, you know, it's, They've got a they've got a pretty good vested interest in not screwing it up. Yeah, yeah. like instead, to, to they, I was going to say there could be two messages. Everything's going well, or <laughs> well, we better get going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, there's that is that now. there's that one one recalcitrant recalcitrant B is. You know what? I, I'm just going to put in a, a fake message to see yeah. what happens. <laughs> I want the hive split. I'm done with this queen. <laughs> there's a coup. Great. A, subver- yeah. a subversive bee. Yeah, look, who knows? I don't know if bees ever get it wrong, to be honest, but, um, yeah, fascinating study. Yeah, I'm glad we got into the detail there, Ewan. Uh, <laughs> uh, good segue to the reason for that, Chris KP. You know, it's, it's an even better segue than that because in a, in a move that was totally unplanned and seems delightful, we're going to go from bees to birds. Um, that's okay. <laughs> uh, and, and Jen, we'll, we'll get you to bring, up, uh, bring us home if you don't mind. Sure um, thing, the, Chris. Uh, Always here for you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I think that's good. Uh, so look, this this is this is a very this is a segue arama actually because I um I was looking you know for for stories uh, for you know for um for today and at, at the same time I was looking I was sitting by a window and outside there was a um a magpie sitting on a fence post and it was all fluffed up and looking all plump and cozy because it was cold right um and then I landed on this story which is about how birds stay warm and what's really interesting about this is that there's there's two reasonably well understood ways one is they fluff themselves up so next time you see you know a bird all fluffed up it's not fat it's just big feathered and by doing that they develop a layer of, of, of air which can insulate them they also um can shiver and they've got because they fly they've got quite pronounced pectoral muscles so they can flap those very you know very small motions which warms them up somewhere we shiver but some scientists have recently discovered that there's something even more nifty about this so one of the key differences between birds and mammals uh, is their blood. Now, they both have red blood cells and white blood cells and plasma and all that, that stuff. But in a, in a, in a mammalian red, mature red blood cell, there's no nucleus. There's basically just, you know, a cell that carries oxygen. That's its primary aim. But in birds, they actually have nuclei in there and they have mitochondria. Now, mitochondria, for those of you who have yet to enjoy the delights of my favourite organelle, um, are the thing that actually generates energy. And generally speaking, they produce that energy in the form of chemical energy, which can then get you know, used wherever you need to use it and carry it around the, the animal. <laughs> what they found, Gesundheit. Um, what they found. Doing? <laughs> <laughs> he's just trying to get warm, clearly. Yeah, he's trying to get warm. <laughs> yeah. That's quite the day for it. What they found is that um, by, by measuring the amount of oxygen being used by these, by these birds, what they found is that, firstly, they had more mitochondria in their red blood cells. There was just more of them. 
the next thing they found is that they were actually not so much producing chemical energy as just making heat directly inside the red blood cells and therefore inside the blood. So when the temperature goes down, these birds have the capacity to actually make heat in a totally different way directly from their blood, as well as fluffing up and looking really cute. Mm. Very cool stuff. That's amazing. Sorry, I'm uh, a bit distracted by you and sneeze because I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love when people try and mute themselves and the, res- the end result is all they do is they move their head closer to the microphone <laughs> and they don't mute in time and it just amplifies everything. It was, I, that was really well done. Uh, yeah. But I, great, I great story, Chris. <laughs> yeah. It, oh, thank you. It, it does seem to me, though, that if ever there was going to be a case of transmitting COVID via radio waves, that might have been it. <laughs> that was uh, a powerful expulsion there. The irony, the irony of trying to mute yourself when we've been spending <laughs> a whole year of telling people to unmute. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, good work. Oh, well, uh, now, now that we're back in the actual studio, Jen, uh, yeah, what have I, you got for us? Chris, I'm afraid it's not birds or bees, but I want to talk no. about uh, Stone Age cave art so let's imagine we're in france or we're in spain and there's art that was created somewhere between about 14,000 and 40,000 years ago so we've all seen pictures of this incredible european art think bisons and horses Mm. and one of the really interesting things about this cave art that i didn't know is that a lot of it is located in really deep passageways in caves that are very difficult to get to so not in the big open spaces where lots of people would come across this art and see it but in fact the places that you have to get down and crawl on your hands and knees and get right up into the dark recesses of the cave and the question is why why Mm. would you go somewhere that's really hard to get to when few people are going to see it yeah i'm feeling claustrophobic just thinking whenever you see pictures there i'm just thinking Nah, yeah, pass, exactly. Pass. Why would you do yeah, it? Yep. But a paper came out this week from some researchers in Israel who reckon they have an idea of why people went into these really hard-to-reach places. And what they've suggested is that the only way the artists could have got into these spaces and seen what they were working on was with torches. Mm. And if you think about a torch that is uh, burning brightly in the cave to give you some light, it's changing the oxygen levels in the space that you're in to the point that these painters would have actually experienced hypoxia. So they would have been in severely depleted oxygen levels. Mm. So the normal atmosphere has about 21% oxygen. That's what we feel comfortable in. And this research modelled what would have happened to the oxygen levels with these torches in these very narrow spaces with low ceilings. And they reckon in most of these spaces, the level of oxygen would have dropped to 18% within 15 minutes. And in some of the really tight spaces, it would have dropped to 15, sorry, would have dropped to 11% within an hour or two of the artist working. What that means is these artists are experiencing severe hypoxia, which we know results in the release of dopamine, which we know results in completely extraordinary experiences of hallucinations, visions, total transcendence, out-of-body experiences. So these the researchers are arguing that these artists were choosing to go into spaces where they would experience this, you know, hallucinogenic state, and that's why the art is so incredible. So So I was going to say, it doesn't explain why the bison didn't look like they were painted by Picard. <laughs> well, <Right>. you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you're that far gone, you know, like everything looks very weird. And but so they weren't people. bison. They, maybe they weren't bison. They look like bison. They were just painting other people. Yeah. 
or you know unicorns. No, but it's just yeah. it's just this really interesting idea because of course lots of ridiculous yeah. headlines came out about this. You know I about bet. the stoned age artists and all this stuff. But but it does suggest <laughs> this idea that artists seek transcendence and seek kind of you know seek mm. out of body experiences. This has been going on for thirty or forty thousand years. This is not a new thing. Looking for psychedelic drugs. You know yeah. if you don't have access to the drugs, well that's fine. You just go into a really small space and burn the oxygen out of the air around you, and all of a sudden you're on a different plane. I think we should say do not do this in your backyard. <laughs> yeah. Do not dig yourself some little cave. If you're if you're a struggling artist out there, and I know there are many, this is not the way to achieve that masterpiece. Do not do that. Thank you for that very important PSA, Shane. Very boy, true. Oh boy, that, that could be a little bit scary. It's interesting that I wonder, um, you know, is there anything in terms of like the stability of these artworks though in that different environment? Um, you know, the atmosphere being so different compared to what it would have been outside and so stable. Yeah, I Presumably think it's a, led to the stability of a lot of those artworks. I think that's a really important point and I think that's probably what's been previously assumed is people mm. chose places where they believe their artwork would have the best longevity. But maybe this was part of it as well. If you want to produce a masterpiece – and you just want to feel a little bit high while you're doing yeah. it, then the deeper you go, the better. Jeez, yeah. It's, I like the old version of the story, but this one I think I, think I do like it better. It's, <laughs> well, there's, maybe, there's it's, something maybe it's both, right? Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> yeah. maybe that's why uh, it's the Sistine Chapel. That's why they oh, put the roof. I suspect, I, exactly. I think what you discovered there, <laughs> I think what you discovered, Jen, is the difference between you know, mainstream artists and really edgy artists. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, the, there's the ones using the big part of the cave and the ones that are just losing their minds out the back somewhere and doing something <laughs> fundamentally new. So the new research then, Chris, is we need to compare those two art forms and work out what the key differences yeah. are. Yeah. Mm. Mm, interesting. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll wait that story. Cause <laughs> I'll let you know. That's going to mean a lot. Well, uh, gentlemen, uh, we're going to have to say goodbye to you because we're going to go to a break in a moment and uh, come back with our first guest. But uh, uh, see you, gentlemen. We will uh, chat again very soon. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, Dr. Jim, we're going to take a, a break for a moment and we'll be back with our first guest. We're the student coming on from the University of Melbourne talking about some of the concerns and issues that students are facing at the moment. It's not the easiest scenario to be in, so I think that's uh, that's one where we need a lot of help. So Agreed. here's some important station announcements first, folks, and then we'll play you a little bit of music. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. We have our first guest on the line now. Her name is Adriana Zenka. She's a PhD student from the University of Melbourne. Adriana, good morning. How are you going? I'm well, thank you, Shane. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me. You're very, very welcome. We now we have uh, we've been talking with one of your colleagues, and one of the issues that, of course, has been coming up, and I think it's probably come more to the surface over the last year, but it's been around for quite a while is the amount that students, in particular, but early career researchers as, as well are actually paid in the education or tertiary education system. And I suppose many of our listeners wouldn't be aware that there are some issues there. So talk, talk us through what's happening there. I think some of it people may have seen in the news, but um, it's it's more hidden than most people would realise. Yep, absolutely. So one of the, the big issues that students are facing at the moment is they, are, they may be awarded a, a scholarship, for example, through um, their PhD program, but often that scholarship is not really sufficient um, for, for living wages. So a lot of PhD students will be doing supplementary work, usually perhaps something like casual work through the university sector or perhaps with partner institutions. Um, and in that work, um, in, additional, in addition to the, the kind of difficulty they're facing in their PhD program, in their external work as well, they may be facing, you know, rights issues that they're possibly not aware of or they accept contracts and they haven't read them so they're not across all the terms and conditions. 
Um, and so this can lead to, I guess, some exploitative situations in some cases. Uh, and sometimes students are asked to do kind of additional work that's perhaps not kind of doesn't really fit under their, their student their studentship or their, their casual work contract, um, but they feel maybe pressured to accept this additional work um, regardless of whether or not it's paid, just to, I guess, they don't want to be the person that says no or complains about these kinds of things. Mm. Yeah, I, I suppose, I mean, one of the things I remember when, you know, years ago now, but there was often also this mindset around this is part of the rite of passage. Almost like, you know, we will yep. we will exploit you as part of the rite of passage and, and you should be thankful that we let you teach that class because you're going <laughs> to you're going to learn something about that. Now, I mean, there is an element of that. Of course, you, you do learn when you teach. In fact, I didn't learn any of my undergraduate stuff until I had to teach it. I think I, sh I shouldn't say that because uh, the university gave me a degree. Um, but, but, you know, that element is, is in there, isn't it? Like where students come through and they don't know. They don't know that that's not right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that I've sort of come against as a STEM student myself um, is talking to other students and other students, yeah, they don't know anything about it. You say, oh, you know, have you heard this? Have you heard that, the, that you know, for example, our enterprise agreement as tutors says that we should be getting paid this much, but we're not getting paid this much. Have you heard about this? Like, what are your thoughts on this? And a lot of students that I speak to in STEM don't want to know about it. They mm. just want to say, no, this is, you know, our, my, my supervisor had to go through this. This is something that I just have to go through. Like you said, it's a rite of passage. There's, there's no reason to complain. I'm so glad that I'm able to work at the university. I, I don't want to be the person that has to put their hand up and says, this isn't quite right because, you know, that could jeopardise my career. That could jeopardise mm. my reputation. Um, and there's, yeah, a lot of fear is what I come, I come across actually mostly when we talk about rights. There's a lot of fear that there'll be retribution if you say something's not quite right. Yeah, look, I, I always try and remind people, you know, um, polio was a rite of passage at one point too, but, you know, we, <laughs> we don't kind of promote that anymore. Um, one of the things that I find find really interesting here, though, is you, you have you have students who, and, and, you know, you're a student. Um, what year are you in, just out of interest, in your PhD? Uh, I'm, in the, I'm in my second year of my PhD. Second year, so, you know, it really starts yep. to get serious. Good luck. Um, <laughs> That's but, right. But I, I'm curious from your perspective, like, what do you see yourself as? Because there's always this confusion as to, are you a staff member or are you a student? You're not an undergraduate student anymore. And when you go overseas to conferences, that's something that we used to do. Sorry, I'm yep. old. Um, <laughs> you, you would represent your institution as if you were a staff member. So in some sense, you're staff. In some sense, you're a student. Now, how do you see yourself in that context? Yeah, that's a really tricky one. And it's an excellent question because I guess it, it almost depends on the context. Mm. You know, sometimes it's almost like I'm a student when it's convenient for me to be perceived as a student and I'm a staff member when it's convenient for me to be perceived as a staff member. So I suppose I would describe myself as a student before saying that I was a staff member. Um, but certainly, yeah, there's a bit of, I guess, ambiguity there as to whether or not you're treated like a staff or a student, especially, you know, obviously conferences, in-person conferences haven't been a thing in the past year. But um, prior to that, there has been discussion, you know, as a student, are you are you eligible for insurance policies that mm. staff are covered? And it's not clear. There's no, you know, or at least I haven't been able to find that information um, myself. And it's it's interesting to see because in some institutions they make it very clear, you know, students will be treated as staff members and therefore they will be covered by these things. And in other institutions they don't say anything. So it's hard to know, I think, sometimes. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that you, you choose which one's convenient for you at a given time. I, I think the institutions choose which one's convenient too <laughs> because one of the things as a, as a student you don't have access to, of course, is the protections of the HR or the people, what's it called these days? People and culture. Um, <laughs> lack, <laughs> lack of people and lack of culture. Um, but, you know, 
it, you, you don't have access to those protections in the same way a staff member would. And of course, right. if you're a part-time staff member, you have them in that part of your work. But if you were bullied or something else as a student, that's a different game and those protections aren't there. So, I mean, presumably that's, that's a big part of the issue here is students don't know what hat to wear when and as soon as it becomes inconvenient, uh, that then the problems start to arise. Oh, a hundred percent. And I think that's a big thing as well, especially if you've got, let's say, um, maybe some friction between you and your supervisor or your supervisor has made some inappropriate comments towards you. Uh, you don't have someone that you can go to to say, ah, oh, this is this is a problem for me. Um, and one of the things that as a student, you say, oh, okay, well, maybe I'll speak to, you know, usually as a, as a student, you have a, a group of people, maybe a few people that uh, are kind of delegated as your chair or your supervisor, if you like. Um, and you say, okay, well, maybe I'll speak to my chair of my, my supervisory panel um, and they'll be able to help me. But, you know, if your chair is maybe not an approachable person or has a personal relationship with your supervisor, then it becomes quite difficult to do that. And as you say, there's no there's no real channels for students to be able to, to make these sorts of complaints. And it's one of the great difficulties and one of the great problems I see with being a student in higher education at the moment. Yeah. That's about it by oh, Sorry, Jen, can you just repeat that there? I just didn't have your mic on because I'm so incompetent. <laughs> no worries, Dr Shane. You are the least incompetent person I know. But, Adrian, I, I was just thinking, you know, the, the fear and the, um, the uh, risk of exploitation, all of that, how much has that been exacerbated by COVID? Because I don't think this is new, but I do wonder if it's, uh, you know, if the potential is getting even worse now given what we've all experienced in the tertiary sector in the last 12 months. Great question, Jen. Absolutely. I think it's really become a huge problem since COVID because a lot of students, as I say, you know, as a student, you are you don't have a, a necessarily a high level of income. So usually you're in a share house or possibly a studio apartment or living with your parents, whatever the case may be. Um, and if you're in some of these situations, it can be incredibly, incredibly difficult to work. And last year, when you're in complete isolation, I know plenty of students who were living by themselves, did not have contact with another soul, except possibly at the supermarket yep. for six months or seven months. Uh, how, how are they supposed to deal with that? Where are the supports for that? And, you know, it wasn't, wasn't clear occasionally you get an email from the university for example saying there are supports there but when students went to access it it was sometimes very um difficult to kind of get through i guess the bureaucratic hoops to kind of access those services um and it caused stress for a lot of students and i'm sure you know many many students suffered mental ill health during the during covid and that was just you know just completely exacerbated exacerbated by that situation yeah I absolutely think, what, and, what? and still going i mean it's not over, yeah. right? not over yeah. i'm still teaching yeah. fully online at uni i'm not yeah. back on campus interacting with my students it's it's a long yeah. process yeah one, one of the things i often tell students is there are three components for me there is the mental health state you're in when you started which if it was precarious you know mm. gee you want to be really careful signing up for a phd there's the mental mm. health decline that everyone everyone gets yep. during their phd period because it's just stressful and that's going to yeah. go down by a certain amount hence part one being very important you need to know where to start <laughs> but then you add the covid piece in as well and there's an additional part because the world's burning you know and yep. and all of these things collectively for students mean that they need that much more support and that mm -hmm. support has actually gone down during the pandemic not gone up it's gone the it's gone the wrong way because universities are shedding support staff they're 
shedding yep. funding programs. You don't get all the things you used to get. You know, so it's actually gotten a lot worse when in reality it should have gotten better for mm. students. It should so, have been one of the first things yeah. that ramped up. There should have been people sitting there going, this is going to make things really tough for our students. What are we going to do about yeah. it? And one, one of the things I've often pushed and, you know, you, you can try try and get this happening, Adrian, at some stage, but, you know, what we want is a student-centred system. Mm. Like when people yeah. talk about a, a, a patient-centred health system. And if you ever want to measure whether that's what you've got. Just ask a student whether they feel support. Don't ask the admin people whether they've got a student-centered system. Ask the students. They'll tell you real quick. And at the moment, we have the opposite <laughs> of that, which is really crappy. So now in terms of, I mean, just in the final minute, Adrian, in terms of what what students should do if they have concerns about this, I mean, what are your recommendations? I mean, you've mentioned a lot of things where nothing happens but are there things that students can do if they feel they're inappropriately being paid or being exploited or any of this stuff i mean what what do you suggest my suggestion is don't suffer in silence and that can be a really difficult thing when you're being exploited and you're feeling down and out to, to find the courage and the strength to be able to tell someone what's going on is really difficult but i think you know i think the saying is evil grows in the dark and that's mm. certainly something that that i've experienced where if you don't say anything nothing will happen and so if you are able to if you have the courage if you have the strength to be able to do so and again if you don't that's not a that's not a bad thing you know it's up to each individual but if you are able to speak up i would say speak up um if you're not able to talk to your supervisors tell it tell a trusted peer tell tell you know a friend outside of the university sector tell anyone because i feel like the most important thing to get these issues resolved is to have a discussion about it and this needs to happen it's going to start at the grassroots, but it really needs to filter up. It needs to filter up to the people who are making these decisions, who, as you say, are so focused on dollars and cents mm. and not on student well-being. Um, and we need to kind of get the message out there and get the message through to them that this is affecting people's lives in a really negative way. Yeah. Look, thanks so much for that. And I think just to put this in context for most people, if you look around the world, and Australia is not the only one in this place, generally speaking, students in terms of mental distress, something like 40% of most students at most institutions are showing signs of mental distress of some type. That is an astoundingly high number that needs to be dealt with. And in countries like Australia, we should try and knock that right down. So a lot of yep. work to do there. But Adrian, thanks so much for your time today. Good luck. Uh, sounds like the students have got a, a good spokesperson um, in in yourself and that can, that, can, that can help a great deal. They've got someone they can go to. So thanks so much and keep up the fight. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Folks, we're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in uh, just a moment with our second guest for today. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. On the line with us now is Associate Professor David Tingay from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Good morning, David. How are you going? Yeah, I'm great. Um, thanks for having me on, Shane. How are you? I'm great. Now, look, I've been very excited about this interview with you because you're doing some stuff that's just wild. <laughs> so let me just um, let me intro it. One of the things that people are really interested in is when babies are born, and correct me if I'm wrong here, they go from being in a fluid environment to our um, atmosphere environment, and somehow in that small space of time, they work out they need to breathe air. Is that, yeah. That's exactly correct, Yep, We spend um, uh, up to nine months in this very nicely protected, beautifully built environment where our lungs um, effectively breathe liquid because that helps our lungs grow in the womb and develop the right alveolar structure. And then basically very, very quickly in the matter of seconds, we have to rapidly adapt to an entirely new way of uh, dealing with the universe, and, and that is to breathe air. And we have to move that liquid out of our lungs and get it 
and get air into our lungs. And if we don't do that, we get into trouble. So it's something every human has to do. Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've got so much respect for fish and things in the ocean, but we are so much better. Like, they don't have to do that part. Um, <laughs> anyway, just a little snap there at the fish. But with now, you're going to have to talk us through this. How the devil do you study that process? Because this, first of all, anyone who's ever been in a birthing suite would know. This is not the most, you know, laid back, simple, clean environment that uh, you can just, you know, do your little lab bench work in. It's it's a it's a very challenging environment. A lot's going on. Um, things are changing very rapidly. So, how do you go about studying what's going on in terms of those changes in our breathing capability? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point, and that's been um, the fundamental reason why. It's probably one of the least understood respiratory processes that humans go through because it's it's a very quick process. It's changing rapidly. Um, we're dealing with um, a subject, the baby, who just wants to get on and do her own thing um, and is not always compliant. And it's a very uh, resource-poor environment in terms of our ability to take complex physiological or scientific measurements. Um it's hard to work in that environment. We don't want to interfere with the parents and that natural process. We also don't want to interfere with the clinicians. Mm. And um, we don't have all of the fancy things we may have in a lab um, or we may have an intensive care environment like we have in our NICU. So, so because of that, we know so little about it. So we've had traditionally people have tried different things and all of them have had problems. Um, our most understanding around the birth process actually comes from preclinical studies. Um, but they're not perfectly translatable um, because they're in a different setting. They're often artificial, and and they may not involve the right um, the right the same sort of um, conditions that a, a human baby's born in. It, back in the day, in the 1950s, people tried to take X-rays of babies while they're being born via vaginal delivery. There's many reasons why that's not a good thing to mm. do anymore. Yeah, right. um, and there was many reasons why it wasn't a good thing to do in the 50s either. Um, and then in the 70s, people thought, well, why don't we start putting measurements of gas flow um, on the baby's mouth and, put, and try to measure the pressure, so how quickly gas is going in and out of the lungs? because this is a process where you're not breathing air and then suddenly you are breathing air. So why don't we just measure the air? Now, back in the 70s, that, that technology was pretty um, pretty big in terms of the equipment. So we were having babies being born with large pieces of equipment put in their, their mouth and their nose or put over their face. Again, that's not actually a very good thing to do. For a start, it didn't work a lot. And um, secondly, uh, it interferes with what babies are meant to do. Mm. For most of us, if somebody stuck something big in our mouth or put a big mask over our face when we wanted to take a breath in, we'd probably stop breathing. Yeah, not good. <laughs> um, so not so good. So um, people have tried ultrasound recently uh, in Melbourne, and that's not that's a pretty good technique because um, – ultrasound shows air and liquid very well but uh, but it's not the best way to do it because it involves putting a probe on a baby's chest which sort of gets in the way again of what the clinicians the baby mm. and the parents want to do so we've we've adapted a technology that we've been using um in our intensive care um for quite some time as a research tool and also in our preclinical work where we exploit the electrical properties of the chest so, you know, the chest, the, the contents of the chest, we have the heart, we have the lungs, we have tissue, um, and that, that lungs are full of air, and air conducts electricity very differently from liquid. And here we have this environment where we've got someone going from a liquid-filled state to an air-filled state very quickly. So if we measure the electrical properties 
and then use some pretty fancy mathematics, um, particularly some finite element modelling and things like that, we can extract the electrical current patterns within the chest um, and then say, well, that bit of the tissue is got air in it and that bit doesn't. Um, and that's called electrical impedance tomography. And it allows us to take very high resolution imaging without radiation of the chest contents, in particular the lungs. The difficulty is how do we do that? Um, how do we take those measurements? And we were sort of stymied for many decades on this because you had to put lots of little ECG electrodes on, mm. which didn't really work on those sort of wet little babies as they'll be born, <laughs> yeah. and, and putting, putting them on took a lot of time. So we worked with some engineer colleagues in Switzerland, and they came back to us and said, look, we've got this fabric with the electrode, silk fabric, and we can, we can get um, silver chloride electrode material like silk thread and sew it into the material and build you a little woven band that goes around the baby. It's about wow. a centimetre wide, and it's this silk material, and it's got little padding on the inside, and then using a flexible circuit board, it's connected off the baby. So it takes about 12 seconds on average to put this belt around the baby's chest, and then you can walk away. And hmm. the, the machine images the baby's lungs, and it does it continuously via every breath. So it's from that process we've been able to take these recordings of babies taking their very first breaths at birth and do it over from the time they're born until really the time we, they needed to go to their mum for a cuddle. So what was while they were having their care, their, their yeah. maternity care with their midwife at birth. Um, and we've been using that in the NICU for quite some time and we use it when babies are having cuddles, for example, in the NICU with their parents, which is something we do a lot now. Mm. Um, we Very sick babies, we encourage them to have actual skin-to-skin -skin time yep. with their parents. Mm. And we've been recording with this technology and showing that babies breathe better when they have cuddling time with their parents rather than just in an ICU cot. Mm. David, sorry, we, I think we just pause for a moment and say this is just wild stuff. Yeah, um, because, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, especially given some of the options. I mean, you know, my, my background's in physics. So when everyone, whenever I hear someone talk about X-raying small babies uh, seconds after they're born, that just doesn't feel right. Um, you know, just my sort of radiation knowledge. But <laughs> the, the, um, the, the concept here is phenomenal because not only are you, you know, doing this in a way that's not invasive to the situation you're in, but it sounds like you also have a level of temporal precision that many of these other techniques don't have. So, I mean, is, is that true that this is like, when you say real time, it's, this is almost like video rate type uh, analysis of what's going on, yeah? Exactly. It's, it's continuous temporal recording. So essentially for, for a non-physicist, it's breath by breath recording mm. and it's, it's spatial as well because within the, the belt, we have a cross-sectional area of the chest. So we're actually yep. seeing different parts of the chest inflate. So we can very quickly say, as we saw in this study, that the right lung of healthy babies inflates quicker than the left lung mm, at right. birth. Um, and we think that's just simply because their airways yeah. are... Um, shaped the angles of the air, major airways make it easier for gas to flow yeah, through yeah. them. So, yes, we see spatial temporal patterns. It's amazing. Now, Dave, we've only got a minute or so to go, but um, have you learnt what causes the transition and what makes that work? Because presumably there's there's a lot of problems when babies are born, not everything goes smoothly. Have you Has that has this taught you at this point You know what's yeah, going on? Yeah, that, that's the key thing. So we already had a fair idea that what babies need to do is to move air from their airways into the uh, liquid, sorry, from the airways into their alveolar and then into their lung tissue and replace it in that sequence with air. And we know that that's a, that occurs by taking a really big breath in. And that's what crying essentially does. That's why right. we all like crying um, in a baby at birth, maybe not at other times, but at birth. Um, <laughs> yep. But 
But then after that, that liquid is still stuck in the tissue of the lungs. So it's outside of the air spaces, but it's in the tissue. And then when you breathe out, after taking that big breath in, the pressure in the chest drops. And that means that that liquid could flow back into the air spaces and refill the baby's lungs, and then it gets into trouble. So um, what we saw with these healthy babies was really the cool thing from a physiological point of view. Babies intrinsically know they're at this risk. So when they breathe out, they actually start closing their glottis. They slow their muscle, the diaphragm down. They slow the flow of gas out of their lungs. And the thing that we could see with this imaging is they actually start moving air from the already aerated or established parts of the lung. They shift that air and pressure to the bits that are at risk and therefore protect their lung for every breath coming forward. Mm. And that's super cool because they're doing that without anyone having to tell them to do it. Yeah. It's innate. And it also tells us that that's where we need to focus our therapy on the babies who can't breathe. If we just give them good breaths in and we don't support them when they're breathing out, they're just we're just perpetuating the problem. So we're now focusing our clinical trials on that expiratory phase of breathing. Yeah. Look, David, we're, we're pretty much out of time for this interview, but we're going to have to get you back to talk about more of this as, as um, the data keeps rolling in because I can imagine even that one seminal sort of piece of information about forget the breaths in for a moment, focus on the breaths out with these at-risk kids um, is just a phenomenal change and presumably that will just ricochet around the world in the way um, treatment is, is delivered in that setting. And and as we've said, it, you you have minutes uh, to do, you know, it's it's really fast and this has to be done quickly to make sure that there are no, you know, dire consequences of, of things going wrong. So um, it must be an Absolutely. exciting exciting time. Th- thanks so much for telling us all about it and uh, no good luck with um, all the future yeah. research. And we'll have to get you back on to chat about this further because it's it's just amazing that we can now do this so congratulations yeah, on the work i'd love to yeah where's our next we've now got some large trials looking at this experience supporting this experimentary space just started here in melbourne fantastic well david congratulations uh, to you and the team on the work and and we look forward to hearing more in the future from you thanks so much great cheers thank you Folks, that was Associate Professor David Tingay from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute talking about uh, some of the amazing new imaging technologies that we're using to look at babies as they are being born. Very cool stuff. Jeez, Jen, uh, have we lived long enough to see all this stuff? It's, oh, it's incredible, isn't it? I was incredible. just desperate to know what we know about other mammals. We oh, need to get yeah. him back because I want to find it. Because presumably all of the invasive things that you wouldn't want to do in a yeah, birthing yeah. suite with humans have been so, done with cows or horses yeah. or who knows what. And like, is it different if humans somehow evolved to do this differently yeah. or incredible? Well, we're a bit more, uh, you know, we need a little bit more support when we come out than, than yeah. most animals, don't we? Absolutely. So maybe, maybe we've evolved different things there. So yeah. it'd be interesting to compare them. Well, folks, we're going to take a, a break for some important stations announcements and we'll be back in just a few moments with our next guest triple r on fm digital online and via the app we're having a bit of fun here with our guest today we've had some amazing stuff so far and it continues with our next guest we have dr nicholas van dam from the school of psychological sciences at the university of melbourne welcome nick how are you going I'm doing very well, thank you. It's good to have you on the line. Now, you have been a very lucky gentleman, you and your team, over the last few weeks because you've managed to score yourself quite a substantial philanthropic donation for your new centre. First of all, um, who, who was the donor and, and how much money have um, you managed to acquire? Yes, yeah, so the, the donor was Martin Hosking, the former CEO of uh, Redbubble, and he mm. very generously contributed $10 million to uh, set up this uh, contemplative study centre mm. within the School of Psychological Sciences. 
Now, now tell us what what is this center and sort of what is the sort of high level goal that you've got in mind? And I assume the Timmy's for five years or is it permanent? It's ongoing. Yeah, it's over five years. Although um, we're, we're hopeful that uh, that Mr. Hosking will continue to be involved and then might help <laughs> us uh, continue to raise funds for it. Um, look, the center is uh, is essentially set up to study what, what we're calling in the, uh, contemplative studies, and so we we chose that term broadly because we didn't want to focus explicitly on meditation or mindfulness. Mm-hmm. But essentially, it's all things sort of related to meditation and mindfulness. Um, and what, what we really would like to do at, at kind of a high level is, is really create opportunities for interdisciplinary evidence-based research into various contemplative practices. Um, so we really want to create an opportunity for people to, to understand these practices, create opportunity to pull in the, the individuals from the various traditions from which these practices come, and really to ensure that good, rigorous science is being applied to sort of evaluating these practices and how we use them. So that we can actually give people, um, you know, best principles recommendations and and thinking about how to scale these things up um, mm-hmm. on an individual level and on a societal level. Yeah, one of the things I find I'm curious about there is what what percentage, if if any, of these sorts of um, new things that we're seeing, you know, and they're growing very very fast in a lot of different places, actually have some evidence behind them. And mm-hmm. you know, I can imagine, like I remember. 10 years ago, seeing a psychologist and, and going through some meditative practices. And, you know, I build that up to Medicare. Um, so, you know, how, how does that work? I mean, how much actual evidence is there for some of these these techniques? I mean, most of us who've experienced them, you know, do feel better afterwards. Yeah, I mean, look, at the, obviously variations of these practices have been around for quite a long time. Um, you know, <laughs> certainly in, yeah. in the Buddhist context, you know, that sort of dates back 2,500 years. But, um, you know, formal sort of scientific evidence, uh, the, the, this sort of really started to be studied sort of in, in particularly the 60s and 70s, but larger than in the form of transcendental meditation. Uh, that kind of died off um, in sort of, you know, for various reasons that I don't have time to explain. Um, but then there's sort of emerged this kind of new renaissance of study in this space in the late 90s and early 2000s. So then sort of it's really been since then that there's been an accumulation of evidence. Uh, what people have largely studied, though, have been um, monastics, so monks and nuns who have been practicing for long periods of time, um, and then very structured specific programs. So uh, there's a program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction that John Kabat-Zinn designed at the University of Massachusetts, and it's an eight-week program designed to sort of teach people kind of the basics of mindfulness meditation. Um, and so that's kind of largely the kinds of things that have been studied, those specific programs. Um, the use of lots of other forms of meditation or ideas related to these practices uh, you know, people talk about mindfulness much more mm. broadly. Um, there's therapies like acceptance and commitment therapy that integrate components of what they call mindfulness. Um, but those kinds of things have not been studied quite as rigorously. I mean, that's not to say things like psychotherapies haven't been studied. Certainly ACT has been. Um, but yeah, a lot of what's out there has not been studied, despite yeah. despite the claims that are offered to suggest that they have it's been or that there's good evidence for them. It seems like there's such a, a mismatch, Nick, because on the one hand, we've all heard that, that being more mindful and mindfulness meditation are good for us. Yet, you know, there are government guidelines, very clear government guidelines around exercise that we need and, and dietary patterns that we should follow. Yet we don't have those evidence-based guidelines around how we should look after our mental health. And it seems like such a gap to me. No, it's a huge gap, and that's exactly why I think Mr. Hosking was was sort of so 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 supportive of us sort of establishing the center because um, we don't have any guidance. You know, people don't know when they when they come to a clinician or they come to a, a a meditation instructor, for example. There's no informed consent conversation that happens, which is to say, how long do I have to do this for? How many days a week do I do this for? What tradition should I do it in? Who's qualified to teach it? 
Um, what are your goals? You know, is it feeling a bit better? Is it sleeping a bit better? Is it enlightenment? You know, so th 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 those conversations are probably are happening informally. Um, and, and certainly the good teachers and, and people who know this stuff well try to have these conversations and say, look, there are potential risks, there are potential side effects, or it may not be the best thing for you. Um, but we don't have those kind of government guidelines, and it's not regulated in the mm. way that, say, practice of psychology is. So that's something we really hope to change. Yeah. Nick, um, I, I suppose one of the obvious questions that some people may be thinking of, I, I suspect, knowing my audience, is, is there a pharmaceutical component to your research center with regard? to all of these practices because we see this in many parts of the world in, in many uh, older cultures as well that you know the combination of mindfulness and many of these techniques with some some sort of pharmaceutical intervention or enhancement uh, plays a major role in in how they and whether they work or not so we don't have any plans per se to sort of work with any pharmaceutical organizations uh, there certainly has been a lot of discussion recently, particularly around combining some meditation with psychedelics. Mm. Um, there's also uh, considerations of sort of um, meditation and, and meditation-based practices in relationship, say, to pain medications and things like that. Um, you know, it's it's quite a complicated and controversial area. Um, you know, that you raise sort of there are issues of conflict of interest. Um, there are issues around, you know, is it appropriate to sort of pair these various medications? I can go down a lot of different rabbit holes. I'm happy to be directed by you here as to which yeah. people you want to discuss. Yeah, I think, well, I, I suppose the one that's, that's most difficult to, to look at there would be, as you say, some of the psychedelics and some of the, you know, the, the sort of exploratory versions for which some people um, venture down these paths and how much there has been a, a you know very strong movement towards the use of certain psychedelics to to you know do as you say you know when people are seeking enlightenment of some type that's often the path they go down and that's something that i suppose we you know it's probably furthest away from the regulatory environment in terms of you know understanding how to do that appropriately in any sort of medical setting yeah, I think, look, this is becoming explored sort of in, in great depth, and there's a lot of enthusiasm for this. I think, you know, I, I've written, and my colleagues and sort of and I have written articles about sort of concerns that we have about kind of the hype around meditation and, and this term mindfulness. Mm. And, you know, people are just really enthusiastic to do the practices. And so I think what you see is a lot of rollout in various sectors, including education and the military, even a mindfulness, where the intention is really good, but it's ahead of the evidence. I think the case is even more so with respect to psychedelics. I think mm. people are very well-intentioned and very enthusiastic, but they're well ahead of where the evidence is. And sort of they're wanting to make this available and accessible to everyone. My concern when you start to put these things together is you combine hype with hype. Yep. Um, you know, the idea being sort of everyone is experiencing, they're expecting a miracle cure with one of them alone. When you put them together, I think they're just expecting you know something that will just blow everyone's minds um there's a lot of assumptions i think in combining these things which is that you know the experience that someone might have on psychedelics will be an incredibly positive one so you know i've read people sort of suggesting oh well one of the issues for example with meditation is people don't know what they should be doing they don't know what the experience is that they ought to be going after and maybe psychedelics will give them a hint of that hmm. and there's an assumption in that that you know, that experience is a good one, which, you know, in psychedelic research and sort of people who study this, not everyone has pleasant trips yep. um, when they take psychedelics. The other thing, actually, from the more traditional context in meditation is um, many traditions to say that those kinds of experiences are a distraction. You know, it, it may be incredibly pleasant. You may experience bright lights or see, see visions. But many of the traditions say, yeah, but those things are distractions. Mm, uh, right. If you spend all your time then chasing that experience again, you're not actually doing what you're meant to be doing in meditation, which yeah. is just coming to accept your experiences as you have them. 
Mm. So it gets quite mm. complicated, yeah. and um, it, it's very possible, and I'm very open to the idea that these things could be combined in some meaningful way, but the work is just not there, yeah. and I think there's been very little acknowledgement of the potential downsides. Yeah, and Nick, I mean, just before we go, with regards to the sort of work your center's doing, do, do you think we'll get to the point soon or, you know, within maybe 10 years where things like meditative practices and so forth are as accessible through our Medicare system and, and so forth as me seeing a psychologist or me seeing a physiotherapist. I mean, this is, seems to me to be the direction we should go if the evidence is there. What are your thoughts? I think so. I mean, there's certainly been big movements in, in other countries. And, and, for example, in the UK, the NHS sort of approves things like mindfulness-based mm. cognitive therapy as a frontline treatment for depression. I think one thing we have to be really careful about in this process is ensuring that we follow rigorous good evidence, right? But also that we don't jettison kind of the, the practices and the context of the practices, because there is a lot there. And um, the, the traditions sort of where these things come from, they have a lot to say about sort of how to help people guide, you know, and think about guiding people as they do these practices. And if we lose all of that and we medicalize entirely these, these practices, we may end up with simple techniques that, you mm. know, may help people focus or pay attention a bit better, but they may not actually resolve the kinds of things that people are coming to these practices for. But to answer your question sort of in short, yes, I do think, you know, in 10 years, these things will probably be as accessible as, you know, going to a GP. Yeah. And I think, uh, as Jen said, you know, that, that sort of slight shift in focus over the last couple of years towards our mental health as well as everything else, perhaps, you know, preempted a little bit by what's happened with the pandemic and lockdowns and so forth and people starting to talk about it and think about it a bit more. And, you know, you're, you've got your center up and running. All these things are starting to, to play out in the way that many years ago we probably hoped we would get to. So it's kind of an exciting time in, in the space that you're in where, you know, we actually have the chance to look into these things in some more detail. And as you say, make sure they're used in the right way for the right people at the right time. That's something that's important to make sure we don't do any damage. But Nick, congratulations again on getting this money in for the centre. It's a, it's a huge win. Um, it's great to, to have it here in Melbourne, having it sort of play out in our city and, and hopefully some really interesting work coming out. So thanks for chatting to us today. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. Folks, uh, that was that was Dr. Nick Van Dam from the School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne with that new centre they have there as a result of a $10 million gift from Martin and Loretto Hosking, which is uh, great in the area of, uh, area. Of, I guess, where are the other centres in Australia in this? Probably none. I, I yeah, think this I, is probably I the assume first not. One I, first fantastic. one I know about. It's fantastic it's, um, that it's in Melbourne. I mean, you know, based on what we've spoken about earlier today in today's episode, you know, we need this. We desperately need this. Yeah. We need to look after people better. I think there's that, that thing too of there's so many things that have snuck in that aren't evidence-based. Yep, that, agreed. You know, I was, I was talking to my partner about this earlier, just this idea of if I'm doing a mindfulness technique that makes me hyper-aware of my body yep. when my body is the thing causing me the problem, mm. that's bad. Mm, I don't want to be hyper-aware of my physical state when I'm in an anxious state. That, that can be yep. bad. So you've got to know exactly how to play that out. Yeah, and, and that's the, where the evidence comes and in. And the current advice is just download this app. Here's this great app. Ugh. Download it. Use it. And, and that concerns me. Yeah, concerns me greatly too. Breathe in, breathe out. No, there's got to be more. <laughs> I think uh, there's got to be more to it. Folks, I'm Dr. Shane. It's been great t- chatting to you. Thanks, Dr. Jen. Good to see you in the studio. Such an exciting day, Shane. Thank you. It's been great. And a big thank you to all our wonderful guests today and to the other members of the team, Ewan and Chris KP. Remember, science is everywhere. We will chat to you again next week and have a great week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Twitter account or Facebook page.